Good to see you, everybody. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the leaders here at Emmanuel. We have teaching from the Bible here in the church every week, and we've been uh, talking about thriving. The, the series called Thrive uh, to start the year off, uh, which took us through a few themes. We've started with uh, uh, thriving with our time. Last week, we looked at thriving with our money. And uh, this week, I want to talk about power. Um, I'm not talking about uh, electricity or even uh, sort of some kind of mysterious, mystical, magical powers. Uh, I'm actually talking about the gifts, the skills, the abilities, the strengths, the uh, capacities that, that, that each one of us has and what they're for um, and how to use them, how to see them, how to understand them. Um, and to do that, uh, we're going to be looking at a moment at, uh, at one of Jesus' fairly famous stories uh, in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. So if you have your Bible, you might want to turn there. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Um, this story is also told in Luke's Gospel, but uh, we're going to look at the Matthew one today, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get into what it has to say to us uh, in the 21st century. But um, uh, before I do that, just to back up a moment and say that it has been... Uh, a particularly good two weeks at Emmanuel. Uh, this last fortnight ha- has been special. I'm so grateful for uh, so many people gathering uh, in our various prayer gatherings scattered across the week. Uh, they have been they have been so precious. They've been times of of just fellowship together, being together, which is a joy in itself, but also opportunities for us to enjoy God's presence with us, God's fellowship. Um, and there's nothing quite like that. So thank you so much for making it a priority. Thank you for praying with us. Thank you so many of you for fasting with us and making it a, a time of intentionally seeking God. Um, it's, it's been special. I, I could go on about it for ages. I want to urge you to, to build on it now. Uh, we didn't do the first two weeks of the year with praying so that we didn't have to for the other 50 weeks of the year. Uh, we're starting it off as we mean to continue. Uh, we're practicing good habits. And actually, good habits usually take about 40 days, not 14. Um, so let me urge you, if you think, I'm, I'm praying more than I've ever prayed before. I've, I've started my year as a man or woman of prayer. This is so exciting. Um, I want to say Yay! But I also want to say, uh, give it another 26 days, okay? Keep going, not necessarily with the fasting. You don't have to do that. Uh, it's up to you. Uh, but, but whatever you do, keep daily seeking God. Keep doing it until it's kind of in, your, in your, your personal alarm clock, right, inside you. You don't have to be told to. It's just in you because it's a habit, and that's how we change, really. We change through habits, not through resolutions. We change through going through stuff for a few weeks daily, and then the stuff that looks impossible becomes ingrained, and it's part of you. So if you started with the two weeks of Flourish, good for you. Just press on and use everything that we're doing. We're doing these prayer videos that have come out daily this last fortnight. I'd love to revisit that and see what similar things we can do in the future. But just for now, let me say those videos are electric. They're so good. They're electric because they come by email. But they, they are excellent because uh, they, they're taught so well by people who've done a brilliant job of accessibly explaining important mysteries and secrets that sometimes are beyond us. But when someone just says it in a simple five-minute way, it's like, oh, now I know how to fast. Now I know how to pray. Now I know how to do this. 
watch those videos again and again. They are excellent. And keep in looking at your Bible. Just, just If you're going through it in a year like many of us are, uh, Bible Every Day plan, we'll keep keeping up to speed with that. Watch Matt Carvel's tweets. Uh, watch, watch out for anything we're doing on that uh, because this is something we can go through as a church together and it will help us to grow in our relationship with God. Nothing less than that. It's that, it's that real. So keep persevering. One day you will love Leviticus. I tell you, one day you will. If you don't love it this year, if you find it a drudge when you're going through it in February, I guess, March time, it's like Leviticus. Persevere. I promise you, the more you persevere with your Bible, the more you like it, the more you love it, the more you understand and appreciate it. Don't give up. Don't give up. Nothing in this world... Uh, that's worth having, it comes without a fight. And you just fight through these things and find precious treasures. So let's look at uh, this story. It's about three uh, men who are servants of a certain master who gives them each uh, a gift in the form of talents. There's, there's the one talent for, for one, there's the two talents for the other, five talents for the other. I'll read it in a moment, but I just want to say it for this, for the reason I'm giving some background is because the word talent is worth explaining. We understand it as talents means abilities, and I'm going to talk about it a bit like that, but actually, it's literally in this context, it means an amount of finance. It means a big endowment of money. A talent, in reality, would be about 20 years worth of wages. And given that, that we're talking about a master who goes away and comes back a long time later, it seems to me we're talking about a story that, that, that tells us that, about what people have done with their lives. What have they done with the whole of their life? And, and so I want you to keep that in mind as we read through from verse 14. It says this, Jesus is speaking. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. We're going to stop there because actually I'm going to get back into this story next week. We're going to, uh, God willing, do this in two strokes. So so, uh, I'll read on from verse 20 uh, when we look at the rest of the story next week. But right now... Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence with us now. We thank you for your love uh, for your people. We thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that every one of us today who's hearing this, who's watching this, uh, Lord, will know something more of who you are. Uh, Lord, something of how uh, extraordinary, how uh, how good you are. Lord, we want everyone to be drawn towards you because of your goodness. And I, I pray for every single one of us, those who have known you for years and those who they are not sure if they know you or not. Maybe some who, who, are, who are quite, quite curious but, but not, not convinced yet about Jesus. Lord, would you reveal yourself to each one of us? In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. 
Amen. So we live in a divided time, uh, particularly aware of that, I guess, this last week. There are various ways in which we divide amongst ourselves in society, um, split into, into kind of opposing halves. One of them actually is, uh, I guess, down the line of, of ability, talent, gifts. We, we tend to classify people very simply without necessarily consciously doing it into talented, not talented, uh, gifted, not gifted, um, elite, not elite, um, hot, not, uh, pe- people who are in, people who are not in, people who are, you know, just they're not, not as good as us, or, or vice versa, I wish, I wish I was in like they're in. Um, it, it can be as binary as that, and it doesn't always lead to, to pleasant things. It can cause a lot of jealousy and a lot of pride. Uh, but that's a, a very uh, typical way for us to see the world. We t- sort of might grade ourselves that way. Am I, am I really talented, really gifted, or am I basically not? You know, I just know I'm not. Well, this, this story Jesus tells seems to undermine uh, that way of seeing things. It, he seems to be uh, presenting a very different understanding of, of people's different abilities and, and, and uh, people's kind of lot in life because he's, he's presenting to us a, a master who, who it's, in this story, we, you know, it's very easy to start saying, okay, we're talking about God and people, you know, basically, you know, basically what we're seeing here. And, and yet God hasn't allotted to someone the talents and someone else none. Rather, each one has been allotted some, but as it says quite specifically there at the end of verse uh, 25, it says, to each according to his ability, uh, then he went away. So uh, in this story that Jesus is telling, he seems to be without any apology presenting a world in which God has definitely given people different levels of ability uh, without it being an evil thing. Uh, he's, he, it's just simply there. We can't get around it. We, we might try to, but it's one of those stubborn bits in the Bible that shows that, that God doesn't see things quite the way we do. We might say, well, that's not fair. Some people being created more able than others, or, or some people having a, a certain ability that another person doesn't have. That, that just doesn't seem right to me. Of course, if, if I'm, I'm the creator of the world, I get to make that objection. But since I'm not, maybe I should just wait and hold my tongue and think through this a little bit further. Because the God of the Bible is presented as actually, yes, some people are definitely uh, made differently than others. And there's a different kind of range of gifts. There's different kinds of abilities in the context of it all being seen as yeah, it's, not, it's not wrong. It's not necessarily unfair. It's not something to quickly apologize for. One of the main reasons we miss this is because we in our age, and I'll give you, I guess, a kind of a very broad brush sort of history moment here uh, for a change. Uh, And and that is that we, we in our age, we live in a very broken up individualistic and egalitarian, to use a big fat word, it just means very flat and uniform and everybody having to be the same kind of world. I want to just open those two ideas up in a moment. But what it means, we, 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 we tend to see uh, the world a little differently than most people actually in history have seen it. 
Most different cultures have seen the world as groups, as communities, as families, tribes even, to which people all belong. And everybody plays their different part, and that's cool. And it doesn't have to be all the same part. We contribute to the whole. Uh, I think we particularly in 21st century places like Brighton, uh, we, we, we resist it or we don't get that at least. We, we're a little bit kind of tone deaf to it. We've got a bit of a tin ear to that way of reading things and seeing things. Because the first thing at the front of our minds tends to be, uh, is this fair for me? <laughs> is, it, is it perfectly, perfectly, perfectly equal in every way? And it's worth us thinking this through. I mean, why, why would it be that we struggle with this notion of a kind of uh, people contributing together to a whole that we're all part of? I think it's actually because, as, for as good a reason as any other, is that we've wandered away from God. As a society, we've wandered away from the God of the Bible. We've wandered away from Christianity. We've wandered away from the influence of the, of the church. And all of these kind of, I guess, things that we would now see as traditional in our culture, we sort of think, well, we're kind of beyond that now. We live in, a, in an age of, of, yeah, of, of well, you know, we're kind of free from that. We're, we're modern, and uh, we've discovered the importance of 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 just me and my freedom and my rights and so on. But have we? Let's look, look at these two things uh, one after the other. The first, the first thing, the, what I called egalitarian. Like I say, I'm talking about the, the way that the, the world seems very flat, where equality and people being equal and being... being uh, seen as equal and everything being fair in that sense of everybody basically being the same is passionately pushed, strongly pushed. And that's definitely a big part of our society, a big part of our culture. We believe in equality. We love equality. We, we think it's right. We, we, we assume it. We don't question it. It's, it's of course right that people are equal. It's just, just, you don't get to question that. You know, in the slogan of the, the 18th century, the, the, the American Declaration of Independence, and Thomas Jefferson had, you know, these famous words that have come down through the generations. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Self-evident, Thomas Jefferson says. And everyone, every American, or every good American has said the same ever since. That's self-evident because, of course, they should be all equal. The thing is, most societies in history wouldn't have seen it as self-evident. You go back, you go back to the, the Romans and the Greeks, even the Greeks. No way. There were whole sections of society that were certainly not equal with the rest of us because, they're, well, they're the slaves or they're the barbarians or they're not equal. They're not free. Slavery went right up uh, with that kind of thinking. Even in reality, across the world, while Thomas Jefferson is saying this is self-evident that all men are created equal, be plenty of people living in India who say, well, we would say it's self-evident that they're not. We hold this truth to be self-evident that they're not all created equal. We have the caste system. We have a whole section of society who are literally called untouchables. 
they're just they're just not equal with us. So if it's self-evident to someone living in Washington DC that all the world's created equal, while on the other side of the world there's someone in India saying it's self-evident that they're not, who wins? Who's right? It was actually the, the, the reality is that it was the influence of Christianity that got, got us to the point where people like Thomas Jefferson, people in the West, said it's obvious, it's, it's self-evident that all people are created equal. Well, in a way it is, but also in a way we needed Christianity to give a reason for that. We needed to have a robust foundation for that. We needed to have something to build that sense of equality on. If you don't, it's not necessarily self-evident. You have to fight for equality. You have to think, why, why are we fighting for equality? Why, why do we believe that? And this is why it was actually it was Christians who were at the forefront of the abolition of the slave trade. It was, it was Christians who were at the forefront of social reform in, in, in the 19th century when little kids were being sent up chimneys and people were, people were sending little children down mines for like 15 hours a day and paying them practically nothing and caring nothing about three, 30 people dying in an explosion in some horrible mine somewhere. Because who cares? They're just workers. They're not landowners. They're not gentry. They don't matter. They don't matter. And it was Christians who said, yes, they do. It was Christians who said, you change that law because they matter. Why? Why? Because they're made in the image of God. That's why. There's actually no other foundation <laughs> except a made up one to, to base human equality in. If we say all people are equal and someone says why, we can't just, we, we, we can't just say, well, I, I feel like it. it's self-evident. It's obvious because it ain't. But if we come back to what God says about humanity, that they are created equal in his image. The little child that's being sent into a mine is equal to the king in London, equal before God. They're before God as image bearers. Therefore, to, the, to harm without warrant a human being, to be cruel to a human being is not just nasty, it's blasphemous. It's blasphemous. It's wicked because the human being is sacred. And so we, we Christians have been saying, no, we're equal, we're equal. And then people like the, 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 the Thomas Jefferson and others have built on the back of that and then said, well, it's self-evident that the world, you know, it wasn't self-evident. It's because of his Christian background that, that Jefferson said that. Our problem is that we've taken this lovely flower of equality that we got from the flower bed of Christianity and we said, oh, I like that. We've cut it off and taken it home. Isn't it lovely? I'll put it in a vase. Of course, it doesn't last very long. You, you, can't, you can't just take the fruits of Christianity and expect them to live forever if you chop them out from what they come from. But that's what we're doing. So we're saying equality, equality, equality. We don't really know why. And it starts to become more of a strange sort of passion that's built on nothing. So equality becomes this sort of very legalistic thing. Everything must be equal. Everybody must be the same. Everybody must be. We flatten differences. We flatten distinctions. Not because we, we're hooking uh, equality. With, with the anchor is kind of driven into the, to the, the bedrock of, of God's image. The anchor is just swirling around. But we're still passionate for some reason about equality, out of habit, I suppose. But the, the equality we fight for becomes more and more divorced from reality. Everybody must be the same. 
A man and a woman, basically the same. A teacher and a, and a pupil, basically the same. The teacher is no longer the teacher. The teacher is the facilitator. Because we're, we're all equal. mustn't have any authority here. The, the man that wants to have a baby, oh, it's equality. Got to have one. Got to be allowed. That's the, the one thing we're terrified of, is, is, is breaking this, this important link with equality at, at any cost. But we've misunderstood. We've misunderstood because if you can't, if, you, if somebody becomes the loser in a race, if somebody doesn't do so well in their grades, if somebody leapfrogs someone else on the management chart, what can we do about that if we don't have the, the God-given equality that is securing everybody? If there's no God, then the only, the only way I can have dignity is if I get exactly the same outcome as everybody else. And so that's the way we fight. We, a, a, a generation that has given up on God but wants equality will have to find it at any cost. So if, I, if I, I feel like I've lost something, I've failed in that. We can't say, well, go to God then. Go to God to find your dignity. Go to God to find your worth. That's where it comes from anyway. That's where it was from in the first place. No, we have to say, well, in that case, nobody won the race. We all won. All the children won that race. What? But that's where we're going. All the children won. No, no, no. I saw who won. The one that broke the tape won. The others didn't win. Doesn't mean they're not equal ultimately, because they bear the image of God just as much as the one that broke the tape. But let's not bother with pretending that they broke the tape as well. We all saw who broke the tape. Okay, so there's one winner, there's the others. All right, it might sound a bit bad to say losers, but we're not, we're not saying losers. We're saying they lost, that's all. But we, we can give them every dignity because they can have a dignity that's way better than the dignity you get from breaking the tape. So let's let people be different. Let's let people be good at stuff. Let's let some people be better at stuff than others. We can be free to do that. We're free to have distinction and difference and good difference that we can be happy about. Why? Because actually the, the gifts and the abilities are not where we get our worth from. We get it from something way more profound. But we've cut ourselves off from what's way more profound, so we're terrified of difference. And everyone gets sucked into this awful 21st century blandness where we're all uniformed and everyone has to be the same. We get exactly the same outcome or we're in a terribly unfair society. Not true. Not true. We need to come back to what gives us dignity. We've lost it and we need to return to it. So this is one of the ways we get it wrong. It's with our, our passion for equality that's kind of misguided. But, but there's another mistake we make without the God who gives the talents in the story. And that is what I'd call individualism. Really, it's very simple. It's this, this kind of... It's, it's the other side of the same coin in a way. It's, it's, it's where really in a, in a godless universe, what am I? Well, I'm a survivor. That's what I am. That's, that is who I am. I'm just a survivor. And I've survived by a mixture of luck and brutality. I've survived because others haven't. I've survived through conflict. I've survived through winning. That's how I've survived, and that's how I'm going to carry on surviving. If I'm a survivor, that's basically it. It's kind of written into my DNA. I've got to, got to survive. Now, if that's the way it works 
biologically and therefore it's probably going to be how it works socially and, and in our minds, we, we will find it very hard to be content not being the winner in everything. We'll find it very hard to be content supporting and serving someone else. I often think about this in, in our city in Brighton and, and across into Shoreham and all, the whole city, we are, you know, way above the national average in terms of the number of self-employed, way above. And that's, that's not a bad thing. It's fascinating. And there's a lot of very good things about that uh, that I really like. And I think it's, it's, it's very, it's very, there's lots, lots to be said for it. But one thing that sometimes makes me think is I wonder how much of that is a lot of individuals who can't bear to do their whole life without being Steve Jobs without being the greatest entrepreneur of their generation. And I'm not going to be that if I'm working for someone else. So I'm going to split. I'm going to find my way in it. I have to, 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 because I've got to, uh, the, the, the only way of validating, the only way of being a success, the only way of thriving is having my thing, having my empire, having my, my brand, my name. It's got to be done. I've got because otherwise I've, I have failed if I'm not him. I have failed if I'm not her. I've failed if I'm not the individual that everybody else wants to be. I must be the one that everyone else wishes they were. Individualism. And it, it, it's, it's, again, it's kind of a classic characteristic of our times. Not especially in the past. Not really. Not as much, I'd say. You know, for example, the word genius, the way we use the word genius, she is a genius, he is a genius. It's, it's not the way the word would have been used in, in centuries back. Genius would have been more like, you know, something that, that comes upon individuals almost unexpectedly. So a, a genius has come upon, you know, that so-and-so has a genius for, for something. Or has, has re, and, and the actual person that, that comes through as the great artist, the whole cult of the great artist, that's a very recent idea. Didn't used to exist before about two, three hundred years ago. Because art wasn't done like that. Music wasn't done like that. It was done in, in, in groups. It was, done, it was people designing and building things for a greater good that we all received from. But we've replaced that with this fascination with the, the cultic hero of the genius. Who, who gets this kind of great name and so on. And it's, it's, it's miles away from what we see here in this story where it's, it's actually the, the focus, if you like, is on the giver. The giver, the master who's giving out distinct gifts, distinct kind of abilities and different uh, destinies in a way. The vision the Bible gives us in replacement of the egalitarian and the... The, the individualist, the, the, the offer that the Bible provides, the alternative, is the image of a body, a body, one body. And, uh, and to get some of that clear, let me look with you at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter uh, in chapter 12, some, some words he uses to, to, to make this point. This whole chapter is about this. I'm just going to read a chunk of it to you. He says this, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, uh, because I'm a foot, 
sorry, because, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And skip down to verse 21. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. So the parts of the body that don't get all the profile and the excitement, they're not the kind of you know, the impressive parts of the body, if you like. In a weird way, we, kind of, we look after those parts more carefully. And Paul's making that point here. He's saying it as a, this is an example of what God does. This is, this is exactly what we are. The, the, the people that God gathers become a body. And, and the parts that, that seem less impressive are actually often the ones that God is most kind of caring for and looking for, giving particular honor to. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. For one member is honored. Sorry, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. So what do we see here? Very quickly, we see distinct roles again, distinct strengths, distinct abilities, really clearly sewn into this, this paragraph that I read to you just now. We also see that each one of the members of the body gets their value from the head. Their value comes not from their, the impression they're making. Their value not, doesn't come from the kudos they're getting from the rest of the body. Their value comes from the head of the body, from their relationship to the head of the body. The, the one whose master is the one who dispenses value, who dispenses identity, who dispenses his appreciation upon each one, which is more precious and valuable than anything. Listen to me. Any value and glory that you try to snatch in life will not last. Any value you try to grab, any name for yourself that you try to get by snatching, you will not have it. It will not be yours. The only glory, honor, and name you can get is a name that is given to you. It's the only one that's worth it. The only glory, the only way to have glory is to have it given, given to you. And Paul's saying the whole body is, is, is joined with Christ. That's how we get dignity and worth. It's given. It's given. I have to come back to this all the time. We do, all of us. You know, there's some, there's some ways the Bible teaches this that are fascinating one of the things that drove the people in the book of Genesis to build the Tower of Babel, which you may have heard of, the story of this tower that was built as a way of, quote, making a name for ourselves. We will have a great name. We don't know the names of the people that built it. Their names aren't in the Bible. There must have been loads of them. Not one of them is named. And it's not because the Bible doesn't do names. Have you noticed? It does. <laughs> when it wants to, it does names. There's whole pages, like page after page, names, names, names. Tower of Babel, no one gets named. We will have a name for ourselves. No, no, you won't. No one's going to know your name. No one. Next chapter of the Bible, God 
takes hold of a total nobody in a city called Ur of the Chaldees called Abram, and he says, I will give you a great name. Then later on, you get the book of Nehemiah, where a whole lot of people built walls, built this great wall around the city of Jerusalem. And it wasn't glamorous or sexy. It was just, it was because of God. They wanted a, a city for God, and they did anything. Really, really qualified people building. It doesn't matter. You got a PhD, right, go and build the toilets. That was what it was like. It was like, just, just get busy. Bill, Bill, you can build the dung gates. You can build, where, where, just Bill, Bill. That's literally, where you read the chapters. They all get named. Everyone, names are in the Bible. They've come down for millennia because God gives a name to people whose hearts are set on him. Best example of this, Philippians chapter 2. Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, he, he even, even to the point of death, even to the point of death, he made himself nothing, made himself nothing. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name. Do you want a name? Do you want honor? I don't think it's wrong that you want honor. Not at all. Do you want glory? There's one way to get it. It's given. It's given to you. And if you want it, give it away. Give it away. Give it away. Some of you are facing situations and decisions right now where it's, do I snatch at this? Snatch at this because I must have it? Or do I trust God? Do I trust God? And sometimes we, we actually make, we make no progress by taking the route of snatching. We regret it. Months, years later, we think, why was I so hasty and foolish? And there are times when we just say, I just give this away. Keep giving it away. What will happen? I'll give it away. I will never get it back. If I give this away, I'll never get it back. No, the whole Bible tells you the opposite. The whole point is that you give away, you have a father who gives you more. He's, he's determined to give you more. He loves to give. If you know, that's what the story's about. Gathered his three servants and says, I'm giving you this. I'm giving you this. I'm giving you this. Have, the, have five talents. Two talents. A talent. It's not very much. It's a lifetime. I'll give it to you. He's, he's, he's full of generous largesse. He loves to give. And we can be confident in that, that uh, commitment he has to giving to us. Jesus himself showed such commitment and clarity about this. We see, we see distinction then of role, but with God giving honor. We also see the, the, in Paul's stuff about the body here, the purpose of distinction. We see, we've seen it in the bit I read to you, but let me take you to verse 7 as well of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 12. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. So the gifts that you have, the abilities, the strengths you've got, why do you have them? For you? For you? So you could sneak a, a few legs up the chart. So you could, is it for that reason? So you could make a bit more this year? That's the main reason you've got your strengths. The reason your strengths are given is for the common good. It's for giving to others. Therefore, don't apologize for the strength. Don't apologize for the power. Just utilize it the right way. <laughs> Leverage it for the right thing. See, in our age, we would say, Jesus, you're the son of God, the powerful one, and all these other 12 disciples are just fishermen. That's not fair. You should all be fishermen. 
You should all be nothing. You should all be nobodies. Jesus didn't think like that. He thought, no, I am the most powerful in the room. I know I am. I'm the son of God. Uh, that makes me, I'm, I kind of outrank them all. What am I going to do about that? I'm going to wash all their feet. That's what I do. That's what I do with my power. I use it for them. Don't apologize for your powers. Don't shelve them. Don't be embarrassed of them. It's false. It's unbiblical. Be grateful for them and use them for others. Use them for him. Use them wholeheartedly for him as God gives you the strength. Let me just take a few more things here from 1 Corinthians 12 before we we finish this time. What does this mean for us? How does it apply to us? Very quickly. It, It delivers us from a couple of things and then it helps us with one more. If we get time, I'll do all three of these. First of all, this delivers us from pride, freedom from pride. How? Because we know it's a gift. It's a gift. This story has nothing to say about people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. It's a, it's a gift. Every person here has received a gift. And so we're talking about freedom from pride as a result. Pride is not to be battled. You don't fight pride like a sumo wrestler. You don't fight pride trying to... Trying to Push it back, or try, you know, like someone, I squeeze it back in the suitcase by constantly, desperately trying to. I hate my pride. My pride. I'm so proud. I'm a terrible. The, have you ever noticed the more you try to fight pride, the, the more the more you, you you focus on yourself? Ever noticed people who I've noticed even people who are desperately trying to be humble. I feel like saying, "Stop it." I just want humility. I just want humility. You you must stop looking at humility. Then get your eyes off your humility. I just wish I was a heart. Some people just come, it comes on and on. I've seen it with people just constantly on and on about, I, I, I wish I was a humble. I want to be humble. You know what, what you're doing with your incessant focus on your own humility, you're becoming kind of self-obsessed. It's kind of not humble. How do you get humility? You, you don't really think about yourself very often. That's it. You get your eyes on someone else. You get your eyes on him. You get more excited and obsessive about him, who he is. And you don't have to lie to yourself. Otherwise, you get people to try. In the name of being humble, every time you say to them something, you know, you're a brilliant athlete, you run really well. No, I'm a terrible athlete. Yeah, but you just, you just won the marathon. No, I'm terrible. Terrible. Why? Because they're trying to fight pride. It's, it's foolishness. Let me just read a quick quote from Lewis. This is our friend C.S. Lewis. He often helps. God wants to bring us to a state of mind in which we could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best, and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than we would if it had been done by another. God wants us, in the end, to be so free from any bias in our favour that we can rejoice in our own talents as frankly and gratefully as in our neighbour's talents, or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. God wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even ourselves, as glorious and excellent things. He would rather us think ourselves a great architect or a great poet and then forget about it than that we should spend much time and pains trying to think ourselves a bad one. So the gifts and the powers that God gives you, be grateful and move on. (laughs) Be grateful and use them. Be grateful and get your eyes back on him. Second thing it delivers us from, jealousy. Jealousy, surely it does, because I know I've only got uh, the gift that I've been given by a gracious 
Heavenly Father, they've got a greater gift than me for sure. But honestly, if we were both doing what he's doing, it wouldn't go well for the body. It would not. Tell me, which one of you wants to be in a body with two noses? Which one of you wants that? Who, who likes the idea of it? Nobody. You, you, this is the way God's a body. So there's different contributions. There's different. Okay, I don't have to do what that person is doing to be valid. Because there's a body. I contribute something. Yeah, not everyone sees it. It's not quite the same. But if I didn't do this, we wouldn't be a body. I contribute by the grace of God to the overall picture. And sometimes our jealousy is actually at the bottom of a lot of our neuroses and problems. How many of us have got real struggles with other people? And we've, we've, we've organized our thoughts about this person for years, maybe months, I don't know. You just, just, yeah, I'm not quite sure what I don't like about this person. And it can be lots of kind of just fretting inside. Maybe we whisper it to friends occasionally. We just say, yeah, I'm not really sure. I just, maybe, just maybe. Can I suggest to you, maybe you're just jealous. Just, and it's not good. You know, jealousy is horrible, don't you? Not, it's not just horrible out there. It's horrible in here. I, when I'm jealous of someone, I feel horrible. It's a horrible feeling, jealousy. It's horrible. And just get rid of it. Do yourself a favor. Get rid of it. Don't have it. God, help me to be grateful. How do we get free from these things? Because we come back to Jesus. <laughs> come back to our master, come back to the saviour, who when his 12 disciples were falling out for a change in Luke 22, they're arguing at the Last Supper. Good time to have an argument, guys, about who's the best. Brilliant moment. But that's what they did, argued about who's the best at the Last Supper. Man. And, and you think, gee, if I was Jesus, like, guys, I'm done with you. Can we get some other disciples in here? I'm done with these ones. But Jesus, he, he, when they're arguing, they're saying, which one of us is the best? Which one of us is the best? You know what Jesus says to them? It's unbelievable. Luke 22, he says, you will all have thrones with me. You've been faithful to me. They're not, they're, he knows they're all going to run away. He knows their weaknesses, their failings. He knows, he knows them better than they know themselves, so much better. He knows you better than you know yours. He knows your failings and weaknesses. He knows the things that make you feel disqualified. He knows everything. He knows it all. He knows the stuff you'll do tomorrow that you, you hope you're not going to. He knows it all. He knows it all. And he says, you are faithful. You've walked with me. You're going to be rewarded. I'm going to give you so much. That's what he's like. That's what Jesus is like. Jesus says to the guy in the, in the body, the member of the body that thinks, I just I wish I was someone else. I, just, I feel so jealous. I feel complicated. I'm struggling. I don't know how I fit. I don't like being, I just, I've got some gifts, but not my, just, I don't feel worth anything. I don't feel valued. Jesus wants to take you aside. He wants to take you aside. Jesus does. Hear me? Jesus himself, the head. He wants to take you, wants to come to you saying your name. Not the body, the na your name. He wants to give you your name and say, you're valued, you're precious, you are to me. To me, so what else do you need? You know, when Peter and John are arguing about you know, what's going to happen to him, what's going to happen to him in the future, one of us is going to die. Did you say one of us is going to die? What about me? What's going to happen? And what's going to happen to him? Jesus says to, to stop talking about him. What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. And it's said tenderly. It's like, you, I'm enough for you. When will I be enough for you? 
We need to pursue Jesus to discover that he's way more than enough for us. Let me say a tiny thing finally about self-awareness. When we get past the pride and the jealousy, we get a chance at self-awareness. We get a chance to, to do what Romans 12 says, to have sober-minded views of ourselves, to know where we fit, how we fit. Let me give you some practical things quickly on this. We learn how we, we fit. We learn our gifts in communion, in community, not on our own, not on a desert island. You find out as you talk to people, you find out what strengths you have, what weaknesses you have. You learn in community. It's humbling sometimes. It's wonderful sometimes. But it's necessary all times to be in fellowship with others, to discover what you really bring. And here's a way to see it. Imagine if you've got one circle, which is all of the things I feel that I'm good at and like doing. And then another circle all the things that people say that I, I bless them with when I do, that when I do them, it brings value. It brings value when I do these things for other people. Those are two different circles, aren't they? Things that I feel good about doing and I value and the things that other people recognize that I'm good at and they say it adds value. They're two different circles, but trust me, they do overlap. They do overlap. Find where they overlap. Find, you find it. Do it this week. Think about, let's put, make a list of all the things I'm good at that I like doing. Make a list then of all the things people have said that I'm good at, things that people say that they value me doing. In friends, whether it's whatever context, and then start to write those things that are in that overlap space. Bang, that's what I got to focus on. That's a good way to keep discovering what, what God's given you. And you'll flourish in it more and more, grow in your self-awareness. Let me say practically, this church wants you to flourish. We want you to do this. We want you to flourish in the gifts God's given you as part of the body. We're totally determined to do that, better than we've ever done it before. Therefore, this year, we're starting to do that. May the 15th in this church, we will start what we call Leadership 101. It will be our first part of deliberately gathering people to help them to develop and grow in their leadership gifts. And we'll start it May 15th for people across the church to do it over a few weeks in the summer term. Okay, summer term, we will roll it out. I want you to know about it now so you can start considering it, booking into it. We want to see people in this church flourish in their gifts, in their leadership. We will gather you. We'll talk to you about your gifts, your skills, your strengths. We'll talk to you about how to grow in them. We'll talk to you about how they fit into the whole picture. Uh, we'll help you hopefully not just in church but in your job, in your outside work. Please, trust me, this will be a fruitful thing if you can prioritize it. Get that date in your head if you'd like to be involved in that. I know that many should, so make sure you do. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for the power that you give. We ask for your help in making it fruitful for in the lives of other people. And we pray that each one of us would understand the grace that is available to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.